Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. No matter what time of year you visit, you'll find exciting events to make your vacation more epic. Ooh. In the spring, experience Universal's Mardi Gras. Yeah. Florida's biggest party. Enjoy parades each night. Yes. And on select nights, you can catch some of the biggest names in music live in concert. In the fall. Nightmares rule the darkness in Universal Orlando's Halloween Horror Nights, where houses drawn from the greatest horror stories chill the bravest. Then, put a little mischief in your Mary when Universal Orlando unwraps a resort-wide celebration. Yeah. You've never had a holiday like this. Ho, ho, ho! We just got back from Universal Orlando Resort, and we legitimately had a great time. It was fabulous. It's really fun. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Pidge Mode is also brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Football. This football season, take a deep dive, not only into binge mode, but into fantasy. Don't just be a fantasy football commissioner. Rule as a Yahoo Fantasy Football commissioner. Yahoo is the number one fantasy site for commissioners. They've spent the off-season making serious upgrades to enhance your experience. So get your squad together and rule the season. And when the season is over, as the commissioner, you pick the punishments. So what do you say, commish? Dive into fantasy football. It's time for you to rule. Start your league now at yahoo.com slash fantasy football. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. That's right. We're going to say some stuff, some wild stuff. I'm not sure what it is yet because it hasn't struck me, but it will. It hasn't struck either of us yet. Believe me, it will happen. (laughs) Cover those ears. One more warning. Yes. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why Ben Affleck has been wearing a Have You Seen This Wizard t-shirt in basically every paparazzi photo he appears in, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. It's cruel that I got to spend so much time with James and Lily and you so little. But know this. The ones that love us never really leave us. And you can always find them. In here. And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of The Ringer. What a great website! (laughs) Joining me today, now that he's finished sparing more than one innocent life. That's right. It's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Now let me through, please. Excuse me, I'm head boy. I'm head boy. Listen to me. You know what Tywin would say if you need to say I'm head boy. That's exactly right, Percy. (laughs) Go to bed. Go to sleep. It's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you prefer to spend your time at Honeydukes, Zonko's, the Three Broomstinks, or the Shrieking Shack, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And please rate and review us five points. Five stars. For Binge Mode. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is only for Binge Mode fans and which is a great place to discuss what form your boggart would take. On yesterday's Binge Mode Harry Potter, mm. we explored how communication and reconciliation shape the climax of yes. the Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban book. And on today's episode, we're diving into the film adaptation. Deep. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While the third Potter movie is today's primary focus, we will be going deep on details from all seven books and eight <laughs> films. <laughs> and the wider Potter canon. Taking the entire series into account. Take that entire thing. Oh, my God. From the moment we put the time turner around our necks. So give us three turns, retrace your steps, because it's time to fight some Dementors. Mal. Yes. In dreams, we enter a world that is entirely our own. Let Isaac... And cram, swim in the deepest ocean, or glide over the highest cloud. Well, I'd like to, but we do have a whole movie to discuss, so we better get to it. In that case, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in the Prisoner of Azkaban film by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot, the Hogwarts Express. After a run-in with the foul, cruel Aunt Marge, yes. Harry leaves Privet Drive and sets off into the night. This immediately starts to seem like a bad idea because a scary-looking dog appears poised to attack Harry from across the way. Hi, puppy! <laughs> Harry stumbles into an accidental summoning of the night bus, which you can learn more about on our first podcast from this book batch, and begins to converse with mm, future Death Eater, mm, Imperio Death Eater, but even so still. I don't still. care about the Imperio. Again, it's an excuse. <laughs> Stan Schoenbeig, whose newspaper contains a screaming image Love it. of an escaped prisoner. Sirius Black, we learn, is a murderer who supported you-know-who. Reckon you heard of him, Stan says? That's right. Yeah, him I've heard of. Hedwig's waiting for Harry at the leaky cauldron, gives him those cute little nips on the finger. <laughs> Love her. And so is the Minister of Magic, Corn Fudge, who weirdly <laughs> doesn't punish Harry and also weirdly has an office at the leaky cauldron, <laughs> like legitimately is posting up there. Just He's the minister out. of magic. It's a suite, you know? I guess. Something weird is going on. Clarity begins to arrive when Arthur Weasley pulls Harry aside to warn him that Black has escaped from Azkaban to find and kill Harry. Arthur makes Harry swear not to go looking for Black. Why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me? Why indeed, my indeed. boy? Indeed. Cut to a very telling shot of Scabbers, one of numerous brilliant transitions in the film. Aboard the Hogwarts Express. This ride, however, is interrupted by the arrival of the soul-sucking Dementor. We hear mm. a piercing scream. Harry! <laughs> when Harry wakes from his collapse, he realizes no one but him heard that sound. No one but him passed out. At the welcome feast, new Dumbledore, played by Michael Gambon, replacing the late Richard Harris, introduces Lupin, Audrey Lupin, as the new defense against the dark arts teacher and Hagrid. Yes, our very own Ruby is Hagrid. Wow. As the new... Care of Magical Creatures teacher, the last one, you know, retired to spend time with his limbs. It's not all good news, though. Dumbledore also announces that the Dementors will be posted at the school to look for Sirius Black. When classes begin, we meet the legend, Professor Trelawney, brought to life majestically. Incredible work. <laughs> by Emma Thompson. Unbelievable. <laughs> Give her all the awards. 
She reads Harry's tea leaves and very dramatically <laughs> reveals that she sees the Grim, a death omen, and remarkably similar looking to the dog Harry saw after he left Privet Drive. In care of magical creatures, meanwhile, Hagrid introduces the proud hippogriff Buckbeak. Isn't he beautiful? Yes, he is. At least to Harry. When Malfoy, however, disrespects Bucky, he earns a talent slash Good. to the arm. Seamus <laughs> reveals that Black... Black... <laughs> Which is concerning, as is facing our fears, which is the task of the day in Lupin's first lesson. Neville, go, run, go, Barati, go. Harry, okay, hold on. What's that, a moon? Yeah, yeah, nobody pay attention to that. Now it's a balloon. Bye. <laughs> with everyone else at Hogsmeade, Harry spends the day with Lupin, who tells him why he stopped Harry from facing the Boggart. Thought it was going to be Voldemort. Okay, makes sense. Then Lupin shares his history with Harry's parents. You're more like them than you know, Harry. In time, you'll come to see just how much. After Sirius breaks into the castle, we observe Snape seemingly implying to Dumbledore that he thinks Black's getting help from the inside. Next, Snape's subbing in defense. Turn to page 394. It's time to learn how to identify werewolves. Why? I don't know. Listen, I just no reason think at it's all. a good idea. <laughs> no reason at all. Just the standard curriculum. Quidditch time. The movie chooses to electrocute the Hufflepuff seeker to strike him with lightning. He is supposed to be Cedric Diggory. Okay! <laughs> Meanwhile, Harry's got problems of his own. Dementors swarm the pitch, and Harry plummets, nearly dying, losing both the match and his beloved broomstick. Let me just say that in Pomfrey's afterwards, you see whoever the seeker was, supposed to be Cedric, obviously, like twitching as like numerous <laughs> people are like trying to hold him down. It looked, It's very alarming what is happening in the background. That young man probably just heard that Robert Pattinson is going to be replacing him in the next film. <laughs> On the day of the next Hogsmeade visit, Fred and George gift Harry the Marauder's Map. Yes! yes! More on this in Prisoner of Azkaban, episode two. Harry's having a blast until he overhears the minister and Rosemurda, the, mm. the comely Rosemurda, discussing he, himself, Harry Potter. He sneaks in to spy on their conversation and he learns that Sirius Black isn't just an escaped fiend murderer trying to kill Harry because of you-know-who, he was James Potter, Harry's father's best friend. And Harry's godfather, and he betrayed the Potters by leading you-know-who to them, then killing their other friend, Peter Pettigrew. Harry is distraught. He proclaims that he hopes Black does find him, and when he does, he's going to be ready. Then he's going to kill him and growl at the camera for a really long time. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. He was our friend. I'll just say that Harry has an invisibility cloak, which means he wants to remain concealed, so he should not breathe quite that loudly. Just a note. Time to learn how to fight Dementors. Lupin explains how the Patronus charm works. More on this in the Prisoner of Azkaban 3 podcast. And at lesson's end, Lupin tells Harry that he would have given James a run for his money with his ability. Ron and Hermione in wonderfully wrought sweaters, iconic, <laughs> are arguing about scabbers and crookshanks. We, this all happens off screen, but scabbers, crookshanks stuff. The rat is gone and Ron thinks Crookie Poo, beautiful little cat, killed him. They go to visit Hagrid to ask about Buckbeak's hearing. The news is as dire as the continuity issues of whether Harry is sitting or standing in this scene. So weird. Buckbeak's been <laughs> sentenced to death. Tough stuff for Bucky. Yeah. That night, Harry's examining the Marauder's map in bed when something catches his eye. Peter Pettigrew who's supposed to be dead, but is extremely my buddy Tom Riddle voice. Very much alive. Harry goes to explore, 
Doesn't see anyone because he's not putting a swan on the ground where rats are. Snape's approaching, so Harry wipes the map, but the potions master still thinks Harry's up to something. How extraordinarily like your father you are, Potter. Lupin arrives, gets Harry out of the tight spot, but lectures Harry for his foolishness. This map could have been a path from Sirius Black straight to you. Harry tells Lupin that the map is busted. Shows dead people. Shows Peter Pettigrew. Lupin looks disturbed. That's not possible. Stop shining your Lumos light in the <laughs> eyes of the paintings who are just trying to sleep, Harry. It's also not possible for Trelawney to be any more mesmerizing. Alone with Harry, she falls into a trance and issues the alarming, and we'll learn proper prediction. Something about innocent blood being spilt and servant and master being reunited <laughs> once more concerning. Oh, oh, hello, Harry. What am I <coughs> It's a very, like, a hairball sound. I love her so much. She's great. It's climax time. Love to climax. <laughs> and it's time for new outfits. Farewell robes. Hello, leisure wear. Our trio sees Malfoy and co. spying on the Buckbeak proceedings, and Hermione lays Malfoy out. Punches him. No slap. A punch. A punch. Punches Draco Malfoy. Love it. Closed fist. Our trio makes their way down to Hagrid, who hands Scabbers back to Ron. After the trio leaves Hagrid's, the axe meant for Bucky thuds and mm. Scabbers bites Ron and flees. Also, the axe, comically large. We, you don't need an axe that <laughs> like, large, We McNair. get it, McNair. You're a Death Eater. Comma you're not in jail. That axe is stupid big. Anyway, <laughs> they chase him into the shadow of the Whomping Willow, and they're not alone. It's the Grim. He drags Ron and Scabbers into a tunnel at the base of the tree, eventually after some CGI fighting with the newly designed Willow, which looks great. Fresh. Looks for the willow. great. Harry and Hermione follow Ron into the passage, holding hands, I should say, which leads to the shrieking shack. More importantly, it leads to a massive reveal. That's not a dog. That's Sirius Black. And he's an animagus. Oh, my goodness. Twist! And Lupin, who arrives shortly thereafter, is a werewolf. A reveal, it turns out, that's like the 12th most important thing we're going to learn in this scene. Black, Lupin says, did not betray Harry's parents. Peter Pettigrew did. Just as Sirius is kindly inviting Pettigrew to come out and play, Snape arrives and disarms Sirius. A truly unnerving sequence ensues. Yes. Because these men hate each other. Yes. Snape puts his wand to Sirius's throat. Give me a reason, I beg you. And he mentions the Dementors and their kiss. It's said to be nearly impossible to witness, but I'll do my best. Oh, I guess we Harry grabs Hermione's wand and disarms Snape. Hermione, who in the book attacks a teacher. You attack the teacher! <laughs> he heard just enough to spark his curiosity, and now he needs to know more about Pettigrew. Lupin lays it out. He also thought Peter was dead until Harry mentioned the map, which, as Sirius notes... Is never wrong. Peter, we learn, cut off his finger to fake his death, then transformed. Show me, Harry says. All right, put on your prosthetic teeth, Timothy Small. Lupin and Sirius press their advantage. You sold Lily and James to Voldemort. What would you have done, Peter asks. Sirius says, I would have died. I would have died rather than betray my friends. Sirius and Lupin prepare to kill Pettigrew, but Harry stops them. The Dementors, he says, can have him. The whole gang heads out. Harry and Sirius share their first moment together, and Sirius, longing to walk through the castle doors as a free man, tells Harry he did a noble thing. He doesn't deserve it, Sirius says. Harry says that dead, the truth dies with Peter. Alive, Sirius is free. Sirius asks Harry if he knows he's his godfather, then says, if you ever wanted a different home, if only it could be that simple. Alas, it's time for a stroll in the moonlight. The clouds shift, and so do we, seamlessly into monster movie mode. Lupin begins to transform. Sirius tries to keep him in his right frame of mind, but amid the madness, Pettigrew gets a wand, transforms back into a rat, and escapes. Shalani's prediction 
is coming. True. Sirius now again in dog form draws Lupin away via an attack. Then fight is brutal and savage. With Lupin called off by a howl, Harry follows Sirius down to the lake's edge. He's not the only one. Swarms of Dementors descend. Harry shouts, Spectre Patronum, some nice little misty clouds come out, but there's just too many of them and his spell isn't strong enough. Just as all seems lost, Harry sees a brilliant, bright, silver stag Patronus. It's a full and unstoppable force that drives away the Dementors and then Harry faints. When he comes to, he's in the hospital wing. Serious though, is in custody. Uh-oh, the Dementors are about to perform the kiss. Dumbledore enters, tells them that no one will believe them. They need more time. If they succeed... More than one innocent life may be spared. Three turns, retrace your steps. All right, you're all good? Is that all clear enough? Ron and Harry are confounded, but Hermione decoded the message. It's time, Turner, time. Ron, your leg has a boo-boo. You can't come. Ah, so this is how Hermione's been getting to all her lessons. And now, this is how they can right this wrong and save not only Sirius, but Buckbeak. Two innocent lives. They retrace their steps, per instructions, and Hermione reinforces that they cannot be seen. They free Buckbeak who has quite an appetite for dead ferrets and live bats. Loves Great a catch. snack. Great catch with the bat. Yeah, loves a snack. Straight out of the air. Good uh, eye-beak coordination Wonderful. for Buckbeak. During a down moment, Harry explains more to Hermione about how he thinks he saw his father cast the Patronus. When it's Dementor time, Harry runs eagerly looking for his dad. He and Hermione are waiting, watching, but no one comes. And it clicks. Harry didn't see his dad. He saw himself. Expect. Patronum! They fly Buckbeak <laughs> to free Sirius, and Harry shares an emotional farewell. First with Sirius, who flies off to life on the run, and then with Lupin, who is out. He's out. Someone, <clears throat> Snape, dry snitch that he's a werewolf. Tough stuff. Lupin then tells Harry how proud he is of what he's learned, and then gives the map back. Mischief manage. Harry enters the Great Hall, where his friends have kindly unwrapped his new broom for him. Uh, uh, the, the, the paper came off. Badly wrapped. It's a firebolt, the fastest broom in the world. Who sent it? Hermione shows Harry the hippogriff feather that came with it. Harry takes flight, screeches with joy, and eats the screen. Mischief managed, indeed. Mal, your order is pulsing, dear. <laughs> are you in the beyond? <laughs> I think you are. Huh? And a good thing. Because we're doing things a little differently today. If you'd like to hear us discuss every beat of J.K. Rowling's masterful Azkaban plot, we encourage you to check out the four episodes we posted earlier this week on the book. Today, we're going to focus more on the film as an adaption and a standalone work of art by handing out some superlatives, some house points. The child's voice, however honest and true, it's meaningless to those who've forgotten how to listen. So open your ears, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. We're about to dish out seven awards. Number one, big idea of this movie. So when we broke down the book, the four themes that we discussed were in order fear, humiliation, force of will, and communication and reconciliation. And all of those are also present, certainly, in the movie. But the overarching theme the idea that is not only there in the most potent emotional moments, but also in the subtle angles of a camera, the positioning of characters at a scene, is this idea of isolation. And throughout the entire film, so many characters are weighed down by secrets or doubts or things that make them feel like they're apart, separate from other people. Harry, of course, there are almost too many instances of this to even list. You know, think of how the film begins. He's finding out that a mass murderer is after him. Once again, he's a marked man. Then there's the Dementor attack on the train where he reacts differently than anybody else. He feels a weakness 
that nobody else is showing. He doesn't get to face the Bogart in Lupin's Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson, another moment that makes him feel a sense of shame and inadequacy. He can't go to Hogsmeade. He is literally separated from his peers, even his best friends, Ron and Hermione, who are supposed to be, in essence, his family. When he falls at the Quidditch match, it's on the one hand like the least essential scene in the movie because it's Quidditch, and on the other hand, it has actually a really poetic significance in this film in light of the theme because Quidditch is supposed to be the one thing that Harry never has to worry about, that he never has to doubt. This is where he excels. This is where he's free. This is where he knows he's good. And now not even that feels right to him anymore. Not even that is something that he can trust. When he's talking to Lupin about why the Dementors affect him so strongly, Lupin says, the Dementors affect you most of all because there are true horrors in your past, horrors your classmates can scarcely imagine. Harry is different. He's the chosen one. He has gifts and abilities that other people couldn't even contemplate, let alone hope to possess. But he also has challenges and limitations and all these things that he'll have to overcome, all these things that will make the choices that he makes throughout the entire series of such paramount importance. When he learns the truth about Sirius Black, when he's eavesdropping and loudly breathing, he's literally going from a moment where he's with Ron and Hermione to a moment where he's taking in the weight of this revelation, to a moment where he is pushing aside, physically pushing other people away from him, right? I want to be alone. I'm hiding under a cloak of invisibility so you can't see me. You can't feel me. You can't understand what I'm going through. The moment where he discusses his Patronus, I want to talk about that a little bit more later, but there is an absolutely agonizing loneliness and just a desperation for companionship that defines that discussion between Harry and Lupin. Even the moment with Lupin where he disappoints him with the map, within the course of the film, to go from finding this relationship with somebody to then jeopardizing it from a decision. What relationships can Harry trust? Who does he always have on his side? He's the one who has to carry the weight of hearing Trelawney's prediction. Nobody else heard that. Nobody else has to carry that horror inside to wonder if that's real, to wonder what that means. Harry spends so much of the story thinking about his parents, thinking about finding them. And when he does, it's inside of himself. The idea that his father is in him. How many people do we hear in this film say, you look like James, you have your mother's eyes. His Patronus is his father's anime guy form. This is a really beautiful idea that reinforces the fact that Harry has these other people inside of him, but also that literally they're with him. They're a part of him because he is the one that he has to rely on. To a lesser extent, this is obviously true for other characters as well. Lupin and the isolation that being a werewolf imprints upon his entire life. Once people find out who he is, he can't stay in this job. What about Sirius? Everything in his life was ripped away from him. And now, just at this moment where he thinks he has family and friendship again, he has to go on the run. Hermione, the lowest stakes of all, in a sense, and also this crucial plot device, this secret that she carried all year that allowed her to do these things on her own that not even her best friends could know about. And this is the thing that that isolation, Mm -hmm. that secret is the thing that allows everything to click at the end. Even Snape, you know, the weight of this hate that he's carried and also that secret love that allows him to continue to protect Harry, the son of this man that he hates. You know, ultimately, Harry Potter is a story about love and friendship, but it's also a story about the burden of being marked in some way as different. It's a story in many ways about the desperation for love because of the agony of being alone. This is the first film directed by Alfonso Cuaron after two films by Christopher Columbus, who is a fine comedic director. 
Quaron at that time was coming off of Itu Mama Tambien, which is a very sexual Mexican road film. Just a lot of full frontal nudity in that movie. It's phenomenal. And could not be more stylistically different than Columbus's more broad approach. A lot of stationary camera stuff from Columbus, whereas Quaron is a has a very visceral style handheld cameras always moving panning between characters resetting the scene and he does so much to hammer home this theme of isolation of oneness of harry being separate and apart and different from everyone else he uses the one of the most famous shots in all of cinema is the last shot in john ford's the searchers 1956 the searchers one of the greatest Westerns, one of the greatest films really ever made. And it's John Wayne's character kind of leaning against a doorway and then exiting out into the landscape as you see him framed through this doorway. And they and Coron uses this numerous times with Harry so that you just see Harry through a door. And there he is like right. in the courtyard walking away. He'll separate Harry from his classmates numerous times, like have him set apart. The scene when Harry finds out what we think at that time are the stakes that there's this escaped criminal, Sirius Black, servant of Lord Voldemort, and he's going to be coming for you, Harry. He's going to kill you. This is what Arthur Weasley is telling him in The Leaky Cauldron. As he's telling him more and more details of Sirius Black and what they think Sirius Black is out to do, Arthur draws him further to the side of this room, and then where they end up is like in this very darkened corner of the leaky cauldron, way apart from everyone else. This is just like— With the serious poster kind of looming. It's so cool. Behind. Lupin's transformation is another one. Just visually arresting and the way he's giving you the isolation of Lupin. First, you see the moon as it's coming from behind the mountains and the clouds are parting, letting you really see it. Then you see Lupin in like— what's basically a wide shot. You see his whole body, essentially, and the fear on his face. Then the camera zooms all the way in from that wide shot, all the way in, tight, 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 on his face, then all the way into his eyes so that the entire screen is taken up by his one eye and the wide pupil as he's staring in fear at this moon. And then all of a sudden the, the eye becomes bloodshot. And you pull back and then you see his face just as he's just shaking because the, it's really incredible. Such a phenomenal moment to to isolate. Yes. Because that character, Lupin, yeah. is about to lose himself. And to zoom in and focus fully on the instant where you know he knows that. Yeah. And can't do it's anything so to great. stop it. And that idea that, like, you are alone— even when you're surrounded by other people, yes. you finally have one of your best friends in the world back in your life. There's truth passing between Lupin and Sirius for the first time in 12 years. Yeah. And there's nothing either of them can do to change what's it's, about to happen. It's cut above visual storytelling. It's just a cut above the first two films. After Sirius has gotten into the castle and slashed the fat lady all the kids are placed in the great hall to, you know, where they can be watched over by the staff. And you see Dumbledore and Snape looking over the kids, walking slowly, mm-hmm. talking about what's happening. And you kind of see them from afar and the camera sinks down, 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 down until who's right there in the foreground. It's Harry Potter. You just see his eyes and he's listening to this conversation. And you realize that he understands that this is about 
him. He's put all these kids in danger because of him himself. He's bearing the weight of the responsibility of what is happening. Great, great storytelling. Isolation is also a huge prevalent theme in the book, but that moment in the Great Hall that you just highlighted is actually one where the film doubles down on the idea beyond even what the book does because in the book, you guys will recall, Harry is listening to this. He's taking this in. And after Harry takes that in, he glances sideways and sees that Ron and Hermione are listening too. They're in cahoots. We're processing this together. I'm here with you. And in the film, Harry is taking that in alone. And then there's the visual storytelling, the Bogart lesson, which is a great scene for a number of reasons. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But so the Bogart is in a wardrobe, which has a mirrored front. And as Thewlis is telling the kids, okay, concentrate on what your greatest fear is. Now you're going to need to imagine something ridiculous that you can place the Bogart in that context. The camera zooms in on the wardrobe and then actually goes into the mirror and then all of a sudden comes out as if it came out the other side and now you're looking at the kids. And then the implication there is like, look inside yourself, look into your reflection and look inside yourself and figure out what that greatest fear is. Great, great storytelling that hammers home that theme of isolation all throughout the movie. Just for the record, since you mentioned the Bogarts, uh, Weird to me, always, that Parvati's Bogart becomes That's more clown. terrifying. That cla- <laughs> clown? After she says the, or performs the ridiculous charm. But what if Parvati's just a freaking weirdo, though? Another youngster who got recast. The head of the character's more prominent turn. Could have been in the Yule Ball. Tough stuff, as they say. Alas. Number two. This is a double. We're cheating. We're sneaking more categories sure. in. Let's talk about both the best book to movie change. So the change that the film made that we liked the most and the worst book to movie change. You go first. What was your favorite change? Oh God, my favorite change. I think it's the circumstances by which Harry comes to overhear the meeting between Fudge and McGonagall and Rosemary as they discuss Sirius Black's past and relationship with the Potter family. So in the book, of course, uh, Harry sneaks into Hogsmeade Ron and Hermione all go to the three broomsticks. Right. They're hanging out and then enjoying a butterbeer, enjoying a butterbeer. And then Fudge comes in mm-hmm. with <laughs> with McGonagall. Yep. Hagrid. For <laughs> yeah. Some reason. The a guy person that he said to Azkaban recently, not long ago. <laughs> months. We're talking months. Mo- like <laughs> some months ago, he sent Hagrid to Azkaban on zero evidence. Now he's out there like chilling with him in Hogsmeade. Flitwick. Flitwick, which, why? And Rosemary, just a really bizarre crew. (laughs) And it makes, and it's like, so the way it goes down in the movie now is Harry is running around in Hogsmeade. He's got the invisibility cloak on and they see Hagrid pull up in a sled with Fudge McGonagall and Rosemary, who's fine that she's there. That makes total sense. It's her bar. It's her bar. And Hagrid breaks the sled because he pulls the freaking door (laughs) off it and then he's like, oh, sorry about that. This draws their attention and then this interests him because Fudge whispers something to Rosemary and then she's like, Harry Potter? (laughs) And he's like, oh, wait, I should find out what this is. So that just seemed more natural to me. Yeah. Also, like, that they conduct the conversation in private. Yeah. Like, in the book, it's just... In a bar. (laughs) In a bar. And then Harry is there. And then Hermione has to put like a tree in front of them. (laughs) It's just like, wouldn't people be like, 
hey, those are Harry's best friends. Maybe don't discuss this now. Like, they'd know that they were there. It just felt like a more organic way for this scene to play out. I quite enjoyed it. I thought you were going to say your favorite book to movie change was Percy not being a part of the Snape Dumbledore. (laughs) We've searched the castle for black conversation. Percy is like... I'm head boy! Peak shut the fuck up Percy in this. I'm head boy. Excuse me. Have I told you I'm head boy? What about you? So I, as you know, I'm not a great self-editor. Great editor of other people. Not the best (laughs) self-editor. So I picked two because I can't help myself. I'm sorry. The first moment is a favorite of mine across all of the films. After the whole gang leaves the Shrieking Shack and Lupin is transferred, they all, they leave Snape inside. Fuck Snape. Which is hysterical. So they're all standing around outside. Snape is not there yet. And Harry, Ron, and Hermione are horrified watching what is transpiring. Lupin is a werewolf. Oh, my God. Are we gonna all going to die? And Snape comes out, and there's a moment where he's like, Potter. Ugh. And then he turns. He sees Lupin right there, and he turns around. He puts his arms out wide, and he literally throws his body and his life in front of Harry, Ron, and Hermione. He shields them. He guards them. How, after seeing that, could you really, really, really ever let go of the idea that he was good? Like, how could you really ever talk yourself into him being a bad guy? His instinct, because that's pure instinct there. There's no time to think. There's no time for snark. And he protected them. I think the issue, the hang up with Snape when people are like, he's actually a dick, blah, 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 blah. I think the issue with Snape is is the good, bad binary does not really apply to Snape. And I would say, in defense of Snape, the bad things that he does, the ways that he treats people that are truly wrong. Yeah. As a teacher, as an yes. authority figure. He's a bully. He's stem, stem from the cruel things that were done to him. Now, he shouldn't do that. Yes, fine. But this is a guy who was bullied and then has just never had resolution in his life where he's been able to move past those feelings in any real way. Like right. he was really, really bullied heavily by a group of people, and has never had closure with that. Never had somebody go, that was terrible what happened to you. I'm sorry that that happened. Right. And, and the thing that we both love about Snape so much, it is that. It's the subtleties. Yeah. It's all the nuance. And yet, perhaps counterintuitively, the thing I love about this moment is that there's no room for subtlety. Yeah. It's boiled down to something unambiguous. Yeah. He had a choice, and he chose to save them. So I love it. My other favorite book to movie change is the specific memory that Harry uses in his first Patronus lesson with Lupin. In the book, the and then this is just, again, in the first lesson, Harry's three memories and his three attempts are the first time he rides a broomstick, mm-hmm. Gryffindor winning the cup, and finding out that he's a wizard and that he's going to get to leave Privet Drive. In the movie, Harry's first attempt is Lupin's kind of, <laughs> almost like mocks him a little bit. He's like, that's not strong enough. But his second memory, here's what he says about it, when he's setting up that he's landed on something. He says, it's not happy exactly. Well, it is. It's the happiest I've ever felt, but it's complicated. And Lupin asks him simply, is it strong? And Harry nods and he attempts. And then later when they're debriefing after the fact, Harry says, I was thinking of him, meaning his father, and mom, seeing their faces. They were talking to me, just talking. That's the memory I chose. I don't even know if it's real, but it's the best I have. So that is just an invention of the film. And it feels perfect to me. It feels so true to who Harry is and to what he really would 
latch on to. And it's just really beautiful. And it's such an important moment for Harry and Lupin and their bond. And it's such an important moment for us as viewers, understanding what really is driving Harry and that there is a depth there beyond just Quidditch, yo! <laughs> what about the worst? Oh, man. Because this is a great movie. We love there's this a, movie, but there are still, <sighs> even here, there are choices that are there's hard couple, to get behind. There's a couple things that bother me, and I think there are ones, surely, that other people will think are worse than this, but I'm going to go with, they give a lot of other characters' lines to Lupin in mm-hmm. this movie. And Lupin doing the Dumbledore, you saved an innocent man from a terrible fate speech, that was tough for me. Now, listen, Gambon, I think, is just okay on balance. He's okay. He's, is he? <laughs> he's, he's okay. He's fine. I, bl- I Honestly, I think a lot of it is the direction. Mm-hmm. You tell a guy to do a certain thing and he does it. I certainly feel that way about his performance in Goblet of Fire. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, like, the iconic shoulder-shaking of Harry screaming, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? A that, line that in the book has the word calmly. Right. <laughs> that is a thing— you don't just do that unless the director is like, really be pissed at him. Hey, could you just be really angry at him? So I don't blame Gambon from that. You know what I mean? Like a director makes a movie. That said, Gambon, I think, is just okay. So limiting his screen time is probably, in this case, a net plus. And I can understand also not wanting to jar people like, right. you know, Richard Harris had just passed away and right. now you, let's ease people into it. Fine. Yes. But I think you really miss that Dumbledore download. Like we said in the previous episode, a staple of Harry Potter is Harry checking in with Dumbledore at the end of the story to really put everything that happened into a certain context. That's an important part of this story. That's in the DNA of Harry Potter. That's a great point. It's really one of the cornerstones. Everything you just said makes perfect logical sense to me. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm just so not into Michael Gammon's version of Dumbledore. that, And I love David Thewlis' Lupin. Like, it's one of my absolute favorite characters come to life. And so I was like, this is great because this line is important to me and I'm glad a character who I want to hear saying something is saying it. But still, everything you say makes perfect sense. What about you? I have one very easy choice for me and then I have one that I want to put out as a discussion point for whether it's good or bad because I'm torn. Okay. My clear choice. The one thing that... When people say Prisoner of Azkaban is clearly the best Harry Potter movie. And again, I love this movie. I've probably seen this movie 30 times. I was watching it today to prep for this weeping uncontrollably, despite how many times I've seen it. But I cannot get past the almost wholesale omission of the Marauder backstory. We see their names on the map. You know, we see Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. And that's like basically it. We learn that Sirius James, Remus, and Pettigrew were friends, but we do not learn that James, Remus, and Peter taught themselves how to become anime guy in order to keep Lupin company during his werewolf transformations, nor do we learn that those transformations are what sparked the nicknames that they then used when they made the Marauders map, because yes, they made the map, which maybe you can pick up on if you are a supremely attentive viewer, because it's obvious that Lupin and Sirius are familiar with this object. They know how it works, but It's never clearly stated. I will never forget the time that I asked my husband if he understood that those characters were the Marauders. And he said no. And I felt like devastated that he didn't have that clarity. He's finally reading the books, guys. Finally. There's hope for us all. Relatedly to that, I feel really cheated out of not getting the secret keeper magic and how that applied to the Marauders, certainly. But even just in general, that's such a cool 
compelling, intriguing idea to think about. Like that one, I understand not doing it. It's too complex. Yeah, it's It's maybe too complex. That one, I kind of get. I get why they didn't do it. It's just one more thing from those characters' backstory that we didn't get that really crushes me. So. That's devastating. I love film version of Lupin and Sirius. So, you know, in a way that just makes me even more sad that we didn't get to learn more about their boyhoods. Here's the one I want to throw out is, is this good or bad? Okay. Quote from Lupin when Lupin and Harry are hanging out on that awesome, gorgeous, scenic bridge. He's talking about Harry's eyes. They're your mother, Lily's. Yes. Oh, yes, I knew her. Your mother was there for me at a time when no one else was. Not only was she a singularly gifted witch, she was also an uncommonly kind woman. She had a way of seeing the beauty in others even, and most especially when they could not see it in themselves. Okay, so on the one hand, this is where my dissonance checks in. I'm going to argue pro this. Okay. On the one hand, I think this is a beautiful moment in the film. It is just a genuinely touching, bond-building moment between Harry and Lupin. It is also a moment where Harry gets to learn more about the kind of person Mm. his mother actually was, and where we get to learn more about the kind of person Lupin was because clearly he needed somebody who believed in him if this is something that he's saying out loud all these years later. Love that. All of it. On the other hand, this isn't really Lupin's moment to have. All of the things he's saying, all of those descriptions, those are note for note Lily's impact on Snape's life and how Snape felt about her. It's both wonderful and like I'm sort of conflicted about it because I want all that stuff to be Snape's. I'm going to argue for it in the film context and this is why. Because we can't go into a character's head in the same way that we can through literature. Mm -hmm. They need to set up that Lily was the type of person that people became enamored with. It would be too almost out of left field and weird, borderline stalkerish, maybe creepy that it's like just that Snape felt this way. Over the course of the whole series, the movie series, it just helps the Snape plot to make it so that you kind of feel that Lily was this type of person that everybody had these right. feelings for. She was for. rare. She was a rare person that everybody had these warm feelings for. You really understood it. So that when the Snape reveal happens, you're like, I get it. Number three, extremely goblet voice. I love magic. <laughs> Award for best use of depiction of or introduction of magical item or ability. A lot of choices lot in of this choice. movie. We, we get introduced to a lot of new magic. For, you go first. Well, so for a purely movie watcher, you're just seeing this stuff for the first time. For a book reader, you're getting to see something you really are captivated by come to life. Either way, incredible. For me, it's got to be the Marauder's Map. This is one of my absolute favorite magical items in the story. It's like high on the power rankings. It's up there with the invisibility cloak and the pensive and a couple other things. And definitively not because of the ultimately like stalkerish nature of what it allows you to do. You know, watching other people, that part is problematic, but I love what the map represents. One of the things that we love so much about fantasy stories is that they allow us to believe that something new and vast can open up to us totally, fully and completely in a way that we never knew was possible. And with the map, that works in both directions. You get to think of how Hogwarts and the grounds That's Harry's world. Hogwarts is his home. He's never felt like he had a home until he was at Hogwarts. That home now contains myriad possibilities for Harry that it never contained before. And I also love to think about that in the past because that map only exists because of the exploration that those friends shared. That's incredible to think about, to think about the moments and the nights 
and the adventures that led to this thing being in Harry's hands. And that's the other thing I love about it is that it's a bridge between generations. It, much like the cloak, is something that bonds Harry directly to his father, even though Harry never got to experience life with his father beyond when he was a baby. They both held this map in their hands and tried to manage some mischief. They both put that cloak (laughs) over themselves and explored. And I just love thinking about how something you can hold in your hands can connect you to a person who you never really got to know. What about you? Does werewolf is, does lycanthropy count as a magical ability? I think it does. Sure. I thought that, again, Crone just nailed this scene. Nailed it. There's the music. The music. First of all, Harry and that theme of isolation again, Harry and Sirius step away mm-hmm. from the group, right? They're kind of like in the background and you see various things going on as they're arguing with Pettigrew and making him sit down. There's all these things happening. And Sirius and Harry in the foreground. And then all of a sudden, the moon. And you get that shot of the moon and it's so vivid. And then that hard zoom in to David Thewlis's eyeball, it chills your bones. And at the same time, it's so exciting. And then there's that moment where Hermione's trying to reason with him. And you think right. for a second, even though I've read the book, I'm like, oh, wait, is he going to be okay? Right. Because he just kind of sits there for a second. That was Great. And that's one of those things where, you know, the technology had progressed to a point where it was just believable. And the way it was shot made it feel like all those things were happening in the same scene. You know, if you look at the two previous movies, you know, some of the effects hold up better than better others. Than others. <laughs> this holds up. Mm-hmm. Really looks great. And I just love how dangerous it felt. It, you really feel how dangerous this world is, how dangerous magic is. And you really understand why yes. at the end, when Lupin does leave, you're like, you love this character, but also maybe for now you should leave until we figure out how to make this safer. Like it just, you really feel the danger of magic, which I love. That's such a good point. It's not all just Honey Duke's candy. Yeah. Though, wouldn't complain if it were. Yeah. I want to do one more because yeah. I, this is another scene I love. The ridiculous training with oh, Lupin. Fabulous it, scene. You know, Lupin in the books is described as this kind of wan, haggard figure, threadbare. Yeah. And he is when we're introduced to him. But when he does the Bogart training, he comes to life. Like there's that. Wands at the ready. Wands, wands at, at the, the ready. ready. And then as each student is successfully deploying the ridiculous charm, there's these little reaction shots of him where he's kind of like spinning on his heel and pumping his fist like, yes! It's very physical. It's physical and visceral, and he's so excited for these kids. And I just love that. I love how excited he is to be passing this magical skills on to another generation. It's something that we really missed over the first two (laughs) parts of the story and first two movies. Oh, hello. Do you live here? (laughs) Yes. And you just feel like these kids are in great hands. It's wonderful. It is special. Lupin is special. Also, to your prior point about danger, like just the idea of the Boggart and the idea of the ridiculous incantation. Right. The representation of literally taking the power back and saying you're staring down, your fear made physical, your terror incarnate, and saying I'm not going to give that idea power over me. That's an incredibly potent thing for children to be thinking about and to believe because they see characters they admire conquering those fears to then believe that they can too. That's incredible. And then the incredibly affecting moment when 
he steps in front of Harry. Oh, God, yeah. And the bogger changes into a full moon. And even as trained as he is, it pulls him up short for a second. Like, he has to pause and then very casually snaps back into, I'm in control of this, and turns it into a balloon that just goes spritzing around the room as the air is let out. Great, great scene that I absolutely love and really brings magic to life in such a visceral and exciting way. I feel like I could go fight a fucking, like, troll now. A mountain troll. Great, great, great scene. Number four, the He Was That Friend award for the most effective snapshot of teen angst and or romance. We both have the same choice, so I'm going to give you my runner-up. Oh, okay. Because we both chose the same thing. It's actually, (laughs) I think it's a quite easy choice. So Harry and Hermione follow Ron being dragged by the Grimm, a.k.a. Sirius, through the tunnel under the Whomping Willow to the Shrieking Shack. And when Harry and Hermione emerge into the Shrieking Shack, they're holding hands as they go up the stairs. They're holding hands also. How often do you hold hands with your friends, ever? And why? I'd like to do it more, honestly. Sure. (laughs) But I just, it's just like one of those things where it's like you could feel the filmmakers at that early age. Keeping open the possibility. Just wanting to keep the options open. They're also holding hands when they're running through the forest toward the lake toward the Dementor Swarm. Which, again, really slows you down when you hold hands and run. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done that, guys. Held hands with a person and tried to run. Doesn't really work. You're always like, my leg's about to get tangled up in this person's leg. Like It's so interesting because those moments have always struck me as like purely mechanical. Like, let's make sure we get from point A to B together. Unlike our winner for this category, which always seemed just full of love. Truly full of love. Ron and Hermione. Just so many moments in this film. Setting it up. Between the two of them. Setting it up. Playing the long game here. Setting it up. Key shipping fodder. Almost too many to even list, but a couple of the highlights. During the Caramagical Creatures lesson when we meet Buckbeak and Harry and Buckbeak are in this dance. You know, will Buckbeak bow? Will Harry get that respect? And everyone's nervous. You know what Hermione's doing? Grabbing Ron's hand. And Ron is like, what? He has that just impeccable facial expression where he's simultaneously really embarrassed and also like, oh, I'm considering a possibility here. There is, this is key because in the prior moment, Harry is apart from them. But in this moment, all three of them are together. This is when they hear the thud of McNair's axe. They think that Buckbeak has been executed. Of course, we'll realize that was the thud of despair that Buckbeak had escaped. And who does Hermione turn to? When she hears the axe fall, she's got both those boys right there. Who does she lean into? Big Red. (laughs) And Ron again with an incredible face. Oh, man. And he knows what to do. He knows to kind of bring her in. She's got her head resting on his shoulder. Let me just say, along with this, if you'll notice in the scenes when our trio is walking through crowds of fellow Mm -hmm. classmates, Ron's checking a lot of the new girls out. (laughs) There's all these moments when Ron is like, oh, who's that? (laughs) Also, when Ron has been injured, you know, his leg is maimed and Hermione and Harry both kind of check on him for a minute. And then Harry goes off. He goes to talk to Sirius and Hermione stays with Ron because she's worried about him. She's caring for him. And Ron kind of goes into like showboat mode a little bit. He's saying, so painful. They might chop it. Like, if you're trying to get a girl to believe your leg is about to be amputated— you're interested. I agree. 
to uh, channel <laughs> our inner Masandi. Oh, oh, your grace. He was interested. <laughs> Number five, sights and sounds. What's the most mm. notable visual element, be it costume, be it hair, be it CGI, be it a look, whatever? What do you got, Mal? So there are a lot of choices here. A lot of choices. Such a visually arresting movie. It's a beautiful film. I want to start... Because of the role that hair plays in this franchise. What a role it does. Hair in the early aughts was a Please wild. check out Andrew Godadaro's unrivaled contribution to the Ringer's Harry Potter coverage from last year when he ranked the Harry Potter haircuts. This, I think, there's a case that this is the best hair movie. It's either this I, or Deathly Hallows 1. I think it's this. It's Awful for the next couple movies. Order of the Phoenix is truly wild, and Goblet is like, what is going on? Like Goblet is like they're a Beatles cover band, and Order of the Phoenix is like they all have desk jobs and they work at banks. Yeah, Goblet <laughs> is like if you put Oasis in a time machine and shrunk them, and then <laughs> you just literally are like, what? The thing with Ron is he always kind of had this haircut, but then it just gets crazy. Crazy. This is like he's discovered hair gel, though. Harry's Ron hair and Azkaban is... has discovered product, yeah. which I love. <laughs> Although I will say that I do think that Hermione's hair gets slightly better. She's slightly exempt, as yeah. the film acknowledges when Harry and Hermione are using the time turner, retracing their steps, and Hermione says, is that really what my hair looks like from the back? <laughs> Speaking of the character's aesthetic... The uniforms, the Hogwarts uniforms change in this film. They're the same in films one and two, and then we get new uniforms, a new, need those new school uniforms. look. And this is big for a couple reasons. One, it's just a better look. Yeah. The robes have the lining, the color of your house. They go to more like darker tones. They're not kind of as bright and poppy as they are in the first two. New Quidditch uniforms as well. And... More essential even than just the kind of base aesthetic is what each character does with it. And famously, Quaron told each of the kids, I want you to wear your uniform the way that you would, the way right. that you think your character would, because not everybody is the same. His instinct to allow the characters to bring their individual flair and their individual fashion sense and sensibilities to those outfits, it just injects some realism. Like, this is how people behave in real life into a fantasy story. Your boy Seamus has the tie, oh. like, just like an inch or two. That's it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And then since we're talking about the kids, we should probably just mention that Neville— Hits his brand stark. I think it's a. I'm a stretch for now. Extremely tough movie for Neville, whose like teeth appear to have hit a growth <laughs> spurt in this movie. Here's the thing: Matthew Lewis ended up being one of the best looking people to come out of this franchise. So it took a while for him to grow into his yes. looks. What about you? What sights and sounds really? I mean, the whole thing yeah. captivates us. But what specifically do you find yourself like thinking about or when you hear it or when you see it on the screen or you're like, wow, I can't look well, away? Well, we both have this. And I think you have to talk about the design of the Dementors yes. and the way they were brought to life. Because if you don't nail that, yes, the whole movie basically falls apart. You have right. to feel that these things are terrifying and scary. And when that yes. hand comes across into the cabin where our trio are riding in the, at the beginning of the movie in the Hogwarts Express. It is bone chilling. Yes. That I mean, it's disgusting. And then the way they look, I feel myself trying to make out what's under the hood and you just can't, right. but you're so drawn into like this darkness, trying to find out what is under there. How do they look? 
and just the ghostly way they kind of glide yes. through the air. Really, really, really scary and wonderfully made. I think the two choices they made could have gone horribly wrong mm-hmm. and didn't. The movie actually has the Dementors fly. Yeah. Like in the book, they're often described as gliding. Right. But these guys are hundreds of feet up in the air air, with Harry on the Quidditch pitch. And then the second thing is the physical representation of them attempting to suck out a soul. The way that like— The face blurs. Yeah, yeah, part of Harry's face kind of pulls out. into. It's almost like his face is made of taffy. I like that. Yeah, I like Airy taffy, right? Pulling out in front of him. That could have been really cheesy and really like, oh, this just looks— either like so fake and weird or like they don't trust us to understand what's happening. And that's not the case. It really, I mean, it sucks you in along with what's happening on the screen. I love the reason I I love the flying change because, you know, flying is such a respite. It's such a sanctuary for Harry. And you feel like he can't hide from these things anywhere. That's right. You can go as high as you want. You're not going to hide from them. I would say also Buckbeak. Had to nail Buckbeak. Dear Sweet Witherwings. Really a wonderful creature design. Looks great. The eyes, so dignified and proud. I love the moment when he kind of like nuzzles the side of Harry's face yes. with his beak. Oh, that's wonderful. Love it. That's yeah. fabulous. And also like really cute. Like when he's kind of like wings folded, his little legs folded under him in the pumpkin patch, just kind of gnawing on stuff. And he's so happy eating the bats. Yeah, really, really well done. I love the way it looks. How do you feel about Harry's Buckbeak flight? Because not only is it like a extended, prolonged sequence, it is very different from how it's described in the book. Like in the book, Harry's basically like, this is really uncomfortable. I kind of can't wait to get off. I hope I don't fall. I don't know yeah. where my hands are supposed to go. And in the film, it's like he's transported. He's I- free. I like it up until he does the Leo DiCaprio, I'm the king of the world thing right. from ah! Titanic. Yeah. yeah, One of the many like memes it, that this movie launched. I like it up until that moment. It loses me at that point. That's fair. The last one I'll throw out here is just the new look of the Hogwarts grounds. Yeah, the the castle is a little different. The layout of the grounds is different. You know, moving Hagrid's hut, introducing the stairs and the bridge and the different layout. And... It somehow just feels more complete. Like they're in this enclave. That's that a great, great point. That you, if you were not a magical being, you could not access. You could not see. That's a great point. And the way that Quaran brilliantly used the Whomping Willow, also redesigned. Yes, to, get, to show the passage yes, of time. to show the changing of the seasons, the passage of time, and the little bird flying around to these markers on the grounds, the willow that are going to be so important at the end. It's like, why do they keep showing this thing? Oh my God, because they're all going to end up there. And also because time is such a key element in the story. The Willow shows the passage of time. Harry standing, again, isolated and alone behind the glass panes of the clock, looking down at his peers. The way they use time imagery is impeccable. That's a great, great point. You really feel like you understand the geography of Hogwarts a lot more in this movie than the previous two. You watch this movie and you're like, but seriously, how did Harry keep ending up near petrified people? (laughs) This place is huge. (laughs) Number six. Best quote. Favorite quote. So many choices. There's a lot of choices. So many choices. There's one for me that stands out above the rest. And it's not so much a quote as it is just a great piece of character thing. But you go first. Okay. I have like 50. I know you do. I'm, I'm so looking sorry. At the- <laughs> <laughs> ah, this is like when we do billions or capitals and like best quote is supposed to be like a button at the end. And I'm like, I've got 20 more minutes for you. 
Couple just couple very quick ones here from my dude Snape. The way that he says, "How disappointing! How disappointing!" It's just it's what my dude Carl from Billions would, uh, as he's swigging Oban single malt, would say, "Pure velvet." About and then another Snape line that. I just find hysterical, like simultaneously very menacing and genuinely very funny is the moment when Lupin shows up when Harry and Snape are discussing the map. And the map is insulting Snape. Lupin appears and <laughs> Snape says, well, well, Lupin, out for a little walk in the moonlight. In the moonlight. <laughs> and he just lets it hang there. And it's. Lupin gives him a little, like, you fucking dick. Yeah, too. he's like, right, I get it. Like, you know, I get it. You want everyone else to know. We got it. Alan Rickman's ability to convey two characters' lifelong history with each other in one line is actually remarkable to me. It really is. Should I keep going? Do you want to go? Should we alternate? I'll just should... alternate. I have one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another, another Lupin moment right yes. on the heels of that. Snape Lupin exchange when Lupin pulls Harry aside and lectures him about the map and about how Harry could be so foolish. And he says, your father never put much store by the rules either, but he and your mother gave their lives to save yours. Gambling their sacrifice by wandering around the castle with a killer on the loose seems to me a pretty poor way to repay them. That general idea, some of those exact words are also in the book. And I love that moment in the book. And I really, I love seeing that come to life on the screen. An absolutely astonishing Trelawney moment when, right before Hermione decides to drop divination, <laughs> Trelawney says, because Hermione's like, uh, the Grim, maybe? Could it be the Grim? Is it the Grim? I'll just throw out, throw out there, is it the Grim? And Trelawney says, you may be young in years, but the heart that beats beneath your bosom is as shriveled as an old maid's, your soul as dry as the pages of the books to which you so desperately cleave. Just phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. I can't wait to drop that insult on somebody one day. Then, of course, there is the truly astonishing Sirius Black. I did my waiting 12 years of it in Azkaban. The day that we announced Binge Mode was coming back after the post-Game of Thrones hiatus, we got so many amazing responses, but one of the absolute best to us saying that we were going to be doing Harry Potter was... Someone sending us <laughs> that gift. I did my waiting. Truly phenomenal. This is another one of the moments that Jason referenced earlier when a line, a key line that belongs to Dumbledore in the book goes to another character. And this is another moment where I found myself, though I miss having a proper Dumbledore in the film, found myself grateful that Sirius actually got to say this to Harry. It felt really right given their shared history and their shared future and what awaits for these two characters. I expect you're tired of hearing this, but you look so like your father. Except your eyes. You have, Harry says, my mother's eyes. And then Sirius says, it's cruel that I got to spend so much time with James and Lily and you so little. But know this. The ones that love us never really leave us. You can always find them in here. Having that moment in the film, Sirius saying that to Harry, given what Sirius's eventual death will do to Harry, how it will tear him apart, I, I just think that's awesome that they got to share that. For me, it's... Let's go back to Lupin's transformation. So you, we talked about how the Marauders map history, the history of the Marauders was kind of excised from this film. Mm -hmm. So 
how do you convey that depth of history in a line? Here's how they did it. So Lupin is transforming. Sirius goes to him, embraces him. He's holding, trying to hold him as if he's trying to hold the werewolf from coming out. Right. You know, and he throws his arms around him and he says, you know the man you truly are, Remus. This heart is where you truly live. This heart here. And he's screaming this at him as if his love for his friend could somehow stave off this thing that is just going to happen. And it's purely a creation for the movie, but it gives you everything that you need to know between these two characters that's been cut out of the film. There it all is. You know, here's this man who transformed himself in order to keep this other man company. Right. Right. This depth of friendship between these two. I'm not going to let you just turn into an animal alone. I'm going to also do that so that I can keep you company when you're as this thing. Right. And. That all comes out in this moment when he's trying with just like the force of will and the force of his own feeling and warmth for this other person to somehow stop this terrible transformation from taking place as if his words could somehow reach through this animalistic transformation that's going on into the heart, the loving heart of the man and saying, hey, no, you're still in there. You're in there. That person that's deep in there, come out, come out. It's okay. And he says, the flesh is just flesh. You right. know, that was great. Steve Close, screenwriter, good job on that one line <laughs> because that is the one line that delivered all of the character stuff between those two characters and just gave it to you, gave it in just a very concentrated dose. And I thought it was wonderful. That was wonderful writing. I agree with everything you said, and I also love what, just independent of even those two people and their history, just what that says about friendship. Yeah. And how time passes and how little that has to matter if the bond between two people is that strong. It's just amazing because he's like, oh, did you not take your potion? See, he knows that there's no stopping this, and yet he tries to stop it. Like, come out. You're in there. We can stop this. It's like when you tried to stop me from reading 27 quotes (laughs) for best quote. You're in there. Someone with the control to only do two quotes here is in there. I know it. Really a great moment. They put it right there in the surface, that feeling that they have for each other. It's so, so, so great. Deeply moved right now. Uh, Number seven. Yeah. So who won this movie and who lost this movie? Great question. A lot of contenders for winner and not a lot of contenders for loser, which is a good sign. Yeah. Good movie. And we have we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of overlap here. I'm going to throw out, I think, our shared three contenders for winner, and then we can together pick one. Yeah. Lupin Trelawney and Alfonso Cuaron. Thulis is uh, masterful in this. Trelawney, not in a lot of scenes. And yet. Emma Emma Thompson comes in and fucking dominates. She does this thing with her hands when you meet her. her. Eyeballs. Yeah, but it's to me, it's the hands when she's like almost trying to feel the aura. Like her hands are so manic and stretching and moving and moving all through the bullshit. It's like fucking great. Emma Thompson, you're a legend. She's incredible. This is also the movie. That transitions the series. Now, look, there's darkness in Sorcerer's mm-hmm. Stone and Chamber of Secrets, but this is a vastly darker film and a heavier film. And so yeah. those moments with Trelawney are actually essential yeah. because putting aside the prophecy for a minute, which is obviously uh, considerably alarming, it's absurdity. And you <laughs> need that in this movie because you need those moments where you feel like 
you can laugh or raise an eyebrow or look at the person next to you and say, what the fuck is going on here? David Thewlis, Lupin. Lupin is one of my absolute favorite characters in the story. The Marauders are among my favorite things in the story. Getting to meet Lupin and Sirius in this movie is just a really special thing. And I think you leave this movie thinking, I hope that Lupin is like a top five main character moving forward. And he isn't, which is a bummer, but that's like a pretty remarkable feat. And for a character to instantly establish such trust, for you to think this is the person that Harry can open up to and look to. I mean, Sirius does it in even less time. And he moves into that space from a completely opposite energy. Right. Yeah, he's got to hit a lot of eagles (laughs) to catch up. (laughs) It's just incredible. And then, of course, Alfonso Cuaron. I think that's, for both of us, I think that's the overall winner for us. Maybe the most boiled down, finest point we can put on it. Don't think this is an overstatement redefined what these movies could be and how seriously they could be taken. And that's a big deal. It's such a pivotal movie for the franchise, both the books and the films, because you're taking these movies to these really heavier themes of fear. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of deep down in your soul? Loneliness, isolation, and death. Heavy, heavy, heavy themes. And you have to do it in a way that is not such a tonal shift that it just throws everyone off, but also in a way that you feel that change. And and he did that. He did it wonderfully. So who lost? Listen, let me put it this way. I'm actually hyper aware of not just always. Did you put his name into the loser (laughs) goblet? (laughs) I don't just always want to be dunking on Dumbledore. I think we'll be clear over the course of this podcast that Dumbledore is not only one of my favorite characters in the story, but one of the most important characters in literature and film to me, period. I love Dumbledore. And thus, I have a hard time. I really have a hard time with the Gambon version of Dumbledore. Now, I will say, I think that some of what he brings to it, like some of that quirk and that oddity, yeah, that a like, little I too, a little to too a hippie, a little too mirthful for me. I think some of it is good. At times. At times. There's a little bit more like kind of energy and pep to the performance yeah. that that will be important like listen when he's dueling with Voldemort at the end of That's Order chilling. of the Phoenix you have to believe it's very good that the person standing there could be doing that so in that sense great but the thing that I kind of just can't ever get beyond with his performance and that I feel very keenly in this movie in particular is his lack of warmth yeah. you see it in the, all these different moments when They discover that the fat lady's portrait has been shredded and he's running through the kids. And he should be trying to calm them and soothe them. And he's shouting, move, move. Like, that's not so dissimilar from the, did you push your name with the Goblet of Fire moment? I hate that shit. And then, like, kind of the dumb stuff, like when Ron's in the hospital wing with his leg and Dumbledore slapping his leg. It's like, Dumbledore's not a doofus. Even Even the way when Harry and Hermione return from the Time Turner mission and they see him outside the, the medical wing. Hate and this. And did what? Yeah, and he's like, Hate it. did what? <laughs> Hate it. It's Dumbledore's like, not a wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, guy. it's just not great. Yeah, so it, I'm, I'm not into that's that. That's very, very tough. I'm not into that. Uh, for me, it's Quidditch. Oh. Quidditch is a loser. Okay. This, uh, this is in one the, of in my this, favorite Quidditch scenes in the movies. I agree, but it's a loser in the sense of Quaron rightly. Yeah. <laughs> rightly was like, all that Quidditch stuff, we don't need it. That's right. It's, Maybe it's my favorite because it's not really there. It's a useful <laughs> frame to show how Harry's sanctuary in the skies is no longer safe anymore. 
but nothing more. Literally, the seeker, the Hufflepuff <laughs> seeker is just a whoever it is. It's just a guy. Right. We have no idea what the stakes of the game are. What does it mean for the points for the cup? It's all about the stakes vis-a-vis Harry and the Dementors. To that point, choosing to save the Firebolt storyline for just smart. a euphoric, jubilant, right. I won, I'm back. I'm back in the skies, I'm free. Instead of making it this through line of the story that is kind of constantly, in essence, a distraction for Harry and a rift between those friends. In the film, it works. You feel yourself missing it sometimes, but it's clearly representative of of the point you're making, which is a deliberate intention to move Move it to the sidelines. And again, there's more Quidditch in Azkaban than in any other book. Well, friends, vengeance is sweet. How we hoped we'd be the ones to catch Isaac Lee and Zach Cram our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again very soon for the first all Harry Potter edition of Ask the Underscore. Keep an eye on our social media platforms for a call for questions for that. And of course, coming soon as well, our Goblet of Fire deep dive. Until then, remember, it made all the difference in the world. You helped discover the truth. You saved an innocent podcast from a terrible fate. Oh, pick up the cup. Pick it up. Tell me what you see. <laughs> it's like a it's like a clumps of stuff. Whoa, yes, yes. Your aura is pulsing now. Mm, what what else? Yes. Uh, it's like, I don't know, dirt. Dirt mound. Let me see here. This looks like the poo of Hercules. Is that one of them? Oh, yes, yes. Mm, pick it up. Now turn it. Turn it this way. Put it near your third eye. What do you feel? Ah, I got nothing. I got nothing, lady.